If you could put back up the text to the Messiah piece that we just had, please. If you saw what Curtis was singing, and I want to emphasize again, would you all please buy a copy of the Messiah? It's very cheap, and it's a cheap way of teaching your children tons of scripture. When I was a little baby, I'd lie in a, in a crib next to the loudspeakers of a stereo my parents had bought, and they were dirt poor. But they bought a stereo, and they played the Messiah over and over again. And this is a perfect way of you instructing your children and having them memorize scripture without them knowing that's what they're doing, which discretion is the better part of valor. All right. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people. What a perfect description of Bloomington today. Darkness covers the city. Gross darkness. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And I want to ask you this morning as we begin our study of the word, is the glory of Jesus Christ evident on you? Can people look at you and see the glory of Jesus Christ? And the Gentiles shall come to thy light and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Today in the church, we do what Christians have always done, which is that we make a show of giving God what he commands, but then we change it so it's actually what we want. So we say, we're going to obey you, and then what we actually do is to disobey him, but we make a show of it obeying God. And the clearest example I've seen of this in my life was back when Christianity Today an evangelical magazine said that we need to change the words of Scripture because that's to be evangelistic. If we change the words of Scripture and get rid of all the places in the Bible where it refers to assembled groups of people like this as brothers and say brothers and sisters, then it'll attract people to Jesus Christ and we'll be evangelistic when exactly the opposite is true. Today, the evangelistic thing is to refer to a mixed-sex group as brothers Because it sticks out like a sore thumb. And that's what you always want to do as a Christian, right? But of course we don't. What we want to do is we want to fit in like an unsore thumb. You know, we we don't want to be sticking out. We want to fit in. And today, under the guise of being evangelistic and missional and gospel-centered, we make ourselves gross darkness because gross darkness in a grossly dark city fits in and so the salt has lost its savor but you can't go around saying I believe in losing your savor and so what we do is we act as if the loss of savor is our way of being salty And so we make a big show of giving to God the gospel-centeredness, the missional, the evangelistic commitment, the witness that he commands by making ourselves completely ordinary and normal and unnoticeable. That's never been the way that God intended his people to grow. 
And it might be a clue what a woman looks like when she's pregnant. She sticks out like a sore thumb. Darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall arise upon thee and his glory shall be seen upon thee and the Gentiles shall come to thy light and kings to the brightness of thy rising. What I want to say this morning is there's no way that you can be more lightful, (laughs) glorious than to be a man or a woman in the gross darkness of Bloomington. And the chief weapon, as Jody preached during the concert, the chief weapon that the world tries to kill the church with is to eviscerate her of any sexual content, to eviscerate her wombs of children and her head of glory, to make all of us androgynous, to make all of us persons instead of man and woman. And if that happens, it's not evangelistic, and it's not missional, and it's not gospel-centered. And so what happens today is, under the guise of being evangelistic, we try to dull our swords. We remove the saltiness of the salt, and we put our light under a bushel. And that's the opposite of what we should be doing. As Christians, what we should do is say to God, God, You have commanded me to love my neighbor, and if I love my neighbor, I'm going to look at my neighbor, and I'm going to see his strengths and see his sins. And then I'm going to focus precisely at his strengths and sins, and right there, I'm going to be light, I'm going to be salt, I'm going to stick out like a sore thumb. In conversations, in the way I live, the way I conduct myself, I'm going to try to be as peculiar as I can be. Now, I don't mean by that that you drive 37 miles an hour in a 45-mile-an-hour zone. That's not peculiar. It's just pious bunk. And you're just irritating the heck out of everybody. Or stop twice at a stop sign. Or stop at a traffic circle. No, no, no. You're to be peculiar at the point where Scripture is explicit. That's the place you're to be peculiar. And don't run your mouth if it talks about your head. (laughs) Does this make sense? If it's talking about your body, let your body do the talking. You know, let your feet do the walking. Let your body do the talking. So if it's talking about your head, let your head do the talking. Don't run your mouth. Because a head is a potent thing. And a head communicates very well. (laughs) Really well. Now, it's Christmas, and it's really awkward to be preaching on head coverings at Christmas. But here's an idea. Let's just label this series on head coverings as the Mary series. Huh? The Blessed Virgin Mary. 
And let's think about the Virgin Mary. She did stick out like a sore thumb. She had a swollen womb. And she was what? She was single and betrothed. And when God sent an angel to tell her her womb was going to swell as a virgin, betrothed, she said what? Here's what she said. She said, verse 38 of Luke 1, Behold, (laughs) behold the feminazi of the Lord. (laughs) The woman hear me roar of the Lord. Remember Helen Reddy? Behold the free and equal of the Lord. Behold the perfect, perfect companion to my weak and despicable husband of the world, of the Lord. What she actually said was, behold the bond slave of the Lord. The bond slave. May it be done to me according to your word. Now, would that stick out in Bloomington if we had women that spoke like that? Huh? 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 Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. Huh? Would that stick out? Is it a, is it a confession of faith? Is it a bright light in a gross darkness? It is. It is. And then she proceeded, when she went to Elizabeth's house, she said her Magnificat, my soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. We think today of what mighty deeds we'd list if we were giving the Magnificat, you know. And listen to the mighty deeds she lists. He has done mighty deeds with his arm, verse 51. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. Doesn't seem seemly for the Blessed Virgin Mary to list the mighty deeds of God as being scattering those who are proud in the thoughts of their mind, does it? Right? He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. This is Mary. This is Mary. And so as we study 1 Corinthians 11... Number one, let's be salty, let's be light, let's not hide our light under the bushel, let's be men and women. And number two, if you're a woman, have Mary as your example. That's not humbling, 
right? That's rather exalted. And if you will follow in your soul after Mary, to be like Mary, you will stick out like a sore thumb in our culture. And it will be so beautiful. It'll be so beautiful. And so let's pick up the book of 1 Corinthians where we have been studying. The Apostle Paul is working on protecting the proper order in the worship of the Corinthian church. And he's admonishing and correcting sins that have come into their corporate worship. And the first of the two sins in chapter 11 that will be dealt with is the sin that we're very familiar with today. It's the sin of women publicly scorning their privilege given them by God of being created from Adam's rib for the purpose of being Adam's helper. Being under authority is no joy to us, not to men, not to women. And so what the Corinthians had done is they'd taken the, the egalitarian aspect of the Christian faith where Paul in Galatians 3.28 says, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, and they'd combined that with the natural wickedness, gross darkness of Corinth, where women cast off their femininity and would not submit to men. All right? And so they said, well, you know, if we're going to be missional in Corinth, what we need to do is have sensitivity to the values of the culture around us. And, and, and our culture around us is really rebellious. And so let's clomp Galatians 3.28 onto the rebelliousness of our culture, and we'll have the perfect evangelism. And so they thought that they were being very, very salty. And so in their worship, they weren't men and women. They were persons and persons. They were metrosexual and butch, to use the language of of our culture. They were androgynous, all of them. And yeah, there was a certain prettiness to the men and a certain strength to the women. You know, Garrison Keillor. And all their children were above average just enough to have an affect of cultural um, engagement, contextualization, you know? Just enough to dull the sword. Just enough to fit in so that people would actually think about coming to church there because when they came to church, they didn't see anything out of the ordinary. And this was Corinth. And she, like she was when it came to incest, remember... She was proud of it. She she was so proud of how sophisticatedly decadent she was. I'm saying she meaning the church, the bride of Christ. And so women were repudiating the public sign of femininity, of order between the sexes, that was the universal practice of the Greek-speaking world at the time, which was the wearing of a head covering when they appeared in public. Notice, when they appeared in public. 
And again and again, we read in the New Testament commands from God that his people are not to rebel against authority. Rather, we're publicly to show ourselves both accepting of and submissive to authority, whether as children to parents, students to teachers, congregants to elders, citizens to rulers, or woman to man, and particularly wives to husbands. Now, please notice I said woman to man, not simply wife to husband. While it's true that wives are time after time called by God to submit to their husbands, this does not mean the woman not married or the woman whose husband has died has departed from her sexual identity and therefore need not demonstrate the feminine deference to man that is intrinsic to her own feminine sexuality. It is true that every woman is not to obey every man. It is true, every woman is not to obey every man. Nevertheless, it's equally true that every woman is to display to every man a uniquely feminine comportment that demonstrates that she loves her station, her descent from Eve and not Adam, and that she lives to please God not only in washing the feet of the saints as her master did, but also in living and talking and dressing in such a way as to glory in her womanhood a key part of which is her being created to be Adam's helper. Eve was not only created wife to to be her husband, Adam's helpmate, but Eve was created woman, Isha, to be man's Ish, helpmate. God created man in such a way that it's not good for him to be alone. God created woman in such a way that she is man's helpmate. Woman addresses man's need. This is her glory. And this is what he is addressing in our text again this morning, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 to 16, which is the word of God and therefore is eternally true. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions, just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it's disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord... Neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. 
Now, as we said last week, Corinth was such a decadent, such a wicked city that there were many Corinthian men and women who shamelessly rebelled against the order of creation and did their best to repudiate their sex. Men refused to make a public confession of their responsibility and authority over woman, and women refused to confess their subordination to man. Subordination means to submit to authority. It always is immodest and scandalous. It always is shameful for a woman to live and speak and act and dress in such a way as to fail to show and to embrace her femininity, that she is woman, not man. Just as it is always shameful for man to live and speak and act and dress in such a way as to fail to show and embrace his masculinity that he is man, not woman. Regardless of the culture or time we live in, Christians are to be at the head of the pack in demonstrating deference to one another, and not just individual to individual, but man to woman and woman to man. And this deference is not limited to our private homes and our private church meetings. If we make a claim to godliness, our manhood, our womanhood, is a key part of our gospel witness to the watching world. And I wish right now all of you were nodding your heads, because this is my third week. And if there's one thing that all of us should just be completely on board with, it's that statement. So let me read it to you again. If we make a claim to godliness, our manhood, our womanhood, is a key part of our gospel witness to the watching world. Okay, thank you. Each minute of our lives is one minute to make good that confession by living hopefully, boldly, prayerfully, and biblically as a man, as a woman. It is a denial of Christian faith to live a womanish man or a mannish woman. Now, what this means is largely a function of our culture. Do we hold doors for women? Do we stand to let them sit? Do we defer to them in the line at the table waiting for food? Do we wait for them to sit and take the first bite when we eat? And there are similar questions concerning women and godliness. Do women allow men to hold the door for them? Do they allow men to carry their suitcase? Do they allow men to go ahead and eat by sitting down at the table and taking the first bite so the men can be put out of their misery? These are some of our own dying cultural signs of manliness and of femininity. Christians are not to be known for casting these signs off, but rather for embracing these signs as a critical part of our gospel, our missional, our evangelistic witness. The Apostle Paul says in verse 3, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. This is the core, it's the heart of the doctrine, of the theology of sexuality. God made man the image and glory of God, whereas he made woman the glory of man. Thus says the word of God, which is eternally true. And again, note that we're not saying God made husbands the image and glory of God, whereas he made wives the glory of man. Marriage builds on God's creation order of the sexes. It doesn't create it. 
marriage does not create the creation order. God's order is intrinsic to the sexes, male and female. And so we're not simply saying the wife is to live and speak and clothe and comport herself in such a way as to show that she's under the headship of her husband. This is true, but it's a subordinate truth to the prior obligation she has as woman to show that as woman, she is the glory of man. Just so, man is to live in such a way as to show that he is the image and glory of God. And here in our text of God's word, we see commands that could not possibly be more helpful to us in this day and age. Here our Lord teaches us to obey our sex, to live our sex, to love our sex. Here our Lord teaches us, commands us to confess our womanhood, our manhood. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So between man and woman... There is an order of authority. Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman, just as God is the head of Christ. Headship is authority. Male and female feminist rebels deny that headship has any meaning of authority, and they say it simply means source. But of course, if all the Apostle Paul meant to communicate here and in Ephesians 5 and other places was that Eve was taken from Adam's rib and therefore he was her source, Why does the Holy Spirit connect that origin so closely to authority so very often, as here in our text this morning? Headship always, always communicates authority. One of the ways you know it is how much feminists hate the doctrine. You know, you're known much better by your enemies than you are by your friends. Headship always, always communicates authority. And this is the reason that the church is to submit to her head, Jesus Christ. He is not simply our source. He is our Lord and Master. This is the reason a child is to submit to his parents, a slave to his master, a wife to her husband. He is her head. He is her authority. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. This is the order of creation, first man, then woman. And Christ Jesus, our Lord, is eternally begotten of the Father. Thus it is no indignity for the woman to submit, to freely confess by word and action and clothing and length of hair the headship of man. How can any woman call this demeaning when Jesus himself so clearly confessed the headship of his father in John 17, 4 and 5? He says, I glorified you on the earth, speaking to his father, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. If Jesus, being one and fully equal with his Father, was not ashamed to submit to his Father, why would we refuse to submit to authority ourselves? And specifically, why would woman turn against man as if the subjection God decreed in his creation order were beneath her, were contrary to her freedom in Christ? 
we must always keep in mind that equality and subordination are not mutually exclusive. If the equality of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is perfect, and at the same time the Son is subject to his Father, we may have harmony and equality between man and woman, while at the same time the woman is subject to the man. Now again, let me say it gently. If you reject man's headship over woman by denying any component of authority to that headship, then you are a rebel against the honor that the church owes to her Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, and against the submission the Son of God gives to his Father. God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of his bride, the church. Christ is also the head of every man. And the man is the head of a woman. And thus says the Lord God Almighty. There is both equality and order, which means authority, at the heart of the Trinity. And that order is part of the foundation upon which the Apostle Paul builds his case against those women in the Corinthian church who are refusing publicly to acknowledge and embrace man's headship over woman. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. The Apostle Paul wants us to understand. But, you know, there as Presbyterians, we're hip with that. As long as he... as long as he stays in the realm of understanding. But you know, the Bible says faith without works is dead. And so the Apostle Paul is helpful and goes on and puts meat on the bones. Verse 4, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Pretty fleshly, right? Now we're past understanding, aren't we? Now we're to bodies and clothing and hair and heads. And you see, that's so very helpful. Note that we don't start with the question of what the woman is to do and show to confess her faith while she prays and prophesies. Rather, we start with the question of what the man is not to do and show to confess his faith while he prays and prophesies. It's, he's not to have something on his head while praying or prophesying. Now, what is that something on his head? Well, literally, the Greek is having down over his head. That's the Greek. The man is not to be having down over his head. All right? Most of our fathers in the faith have seen this to be an idiomatic expression for a shawl or veil or head covering, but as you hear every man having down over his head while praying or prophesying, it's not clear. And the lack of clarity is part of the inspired word of God here, challenging us to dig deep and commit ourselves to what we believe this command is to us today. 
It's not clear what that something is. And yet that something is certainly not nothing, is it? Regardless of what the something is, man is not to be having down over his head. The reason is clear. It is a disgrace to him. Verse 4, every man having down over his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Why? Because the man's head is Christ, and having down over his head while he prays and prophesies is a repudiation of the authority God delegated to him. Now, last week I quoted F.F. Bruce on this. This week I want to quote John Calvin. He writes this. He says, the Apostle Paul says that the man commits an offense against Christ, his head, if he prays or prophesies with his head covered. Why so? Because the father of the family is like a king in his own house. Hence, The glory of God shines forth in him in consequence or because of the authority with which he is invested. If he covers his head, he lets himself down from that preeminence which God had assigned to him so as to be in subjection. Thus the honor of Christ is infringed upon. For example, if the person whom the prince has appointed as his lieutenant does not know how to maintain his proper station, and instead of this exposes his dignity to contempt on the part of persons in the lowest station, does he not bring dishonor upon his prince? In like manner, if the man does not keep his station, if he is not subject to Christ in such a way as to preside over his own family with authority... He obscures to that extent the glory of Christ, which shines forth in the well-regulated order of marriage. (laughs) Listen, you take all the counseling I've ever done as a preacher, every bit of it, put it in a mass, marriage counseling, and that quote from Calvin, that's it. That's it. How many marriages are destroyed because husbands have abdicated their authority over their home, thinking that they're being servant leaders, thinking that the only purpose of authority is, as Tim Keller says it, tie-breaking authority. And then remember I say we always make a big show of giving to God what he wants and then robbing him of it. And so servant leadership is the way that you can feel especially spiritual when you abdicate the dignity that God has placed on you as a husband. It's no gospel witness for men to be wusses. Was Jesus a wuss? If he wanted to, he could have called 10,000 angels. The father of the family is like a king in his own house. David Carell has a chair. And what man in his right mind would resent David Carell's chair? 
Verse 5, every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. You see again the principle that man and woman are to glory in their sex and not just the male sex's handsomeness or strength and the female sex's beauty and fecundity, but also man's authority over woman and woman's subordination to man. And so the man is not to be having down over his head when he prays and prophesies, a woman is not to have her head uncovered when she prays or prophesies. Her head uncovered may be translated bareheaded or head uncovered or head unveiled. And so these verse, words in verses 4 and 5 may be referring to a man with femi, with gay, with precious, with long, with coiffed or feminine hair, and a woman with butch, lesbian, matted, short, uncared for, masculine hair. On the other hand, both words may be referring simply to a veil, or what we would today call a scarf or a shawl, a shawl in that it likely extended to the shoulders. But the key thing is it's the head and its covering. Why does this matter? Because as we have already said a number of times, and as the Apostle Paul and thus the Holy Spirit says a number of times, but, are you, are you getting tired of it yet? But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Note that the reason given for the instruction concerning covering and uncovering heads is the same in verses 4 and 5. Every man, verse 4, who has something on his head while praying or prophesying, what? Disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. Note the addition at the end of verse 5. The Apostle Paul says it's so shameful for a woman to appear publicly in worship with her head uncovered that she is the same as the woman whose head is shaved. Think of Coach Pagano of the Indianapolis Colts. Because of his cancer, he lost his hair. So what did the players do? They joined him in his humiliation. They showed their solidarity with their coach by shaving their own heads. And yet the shame of a man who has lost his hair to cancer is is nothing compared to the shame of a woman who has lost her hair. And then add to that that the woman is intentionally shaving her head. Making herself bald. And we see that woman can become so utterly degraded that she glories in her shame. Mary Lee is reading an account of a lesbian who is born again by the Spirit of God. As a lesbian, she had confessed her rejection of her sex by shaving her head. But when she believed on Jesus Christ, she confessed her embracing of her sex by growing her hair out. And she described it by saying that every day is a bad hair day when you're growing your hair out from a crew cut. But you see, she came to understand that it was a disgrace to have her head shaved, and so she grew her hair out. This was her repentance. This was her gospel witness. This was her confession of Christian faith. 
For if a woman, verse 6, does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it's disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. The Apostle Paul says the disgrace of woman praying and prophesying with her head uncovered is the same as the disgrace of a woman having her hair cut off, her head shaved. And so if woman wants to avoid the shame of a shaved head, let her cover her head. Why? Because the woman's hair is given her for a covering, and as a covering, it calls attention to what? Man's glory. Man's glory. That's what a woman's hair calls attention to. Man's glory. That's why it's so perverse when women of a certain culture will not let their husband touch their hair. It's his glory. What is marriage without touching your wife's hair, I ask you? (laughs) I'm sorry, but it's just so obvious to me. All right. But then I am almost 59. The woman's hair is given her for a covering, and as a covering, it calls attention to man's glory. But that's bad in worship. Man's glory has no place during the prayers and prophesying of the church of Jesus Christ during our corporate worship. God's glory is to be all in all. God is jealous for his own glory. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. And thus, verse 7, for a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, and therefore it's to shine forth. But the woman is the glory of man. So as he prays and prophesies, man is forbidden to cover the image and glory of God most conspicuously on display in the head of his body. And as she prays and prophesies, woman is forbidden to uncover the glory of man most conspicuously on display in the head of her body. And if we're inclined to rebel against this order of man and woman, the uncovering and covering confess call attention to physically or bodily. Then the Apostle Paul reminds us in verse 8, for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. And then the entire section is brought to a close with this command in verse 10. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now again, the translation of this verse is difficult. If you use a New American Standard Bible which is what our text is here, published on the wall. You see, therefore, the woman ought to have, and then see it it goes over to italics. You see the italics? Those italics always indicate that it's not there in the original Greek. So anytime you see italics, it's the effort of the translators to make it easier for you to read the Bible. So let's take the italics out since the Holy Spirit didn't inspire them. Okay? A really good habit to have as you're reading the Bible to just in your brain as you read along, just take the italics out. And sometimes you need them, but an awful lot of times you don't need them. We don't need them here. So here's the way the Holy Spirit inspired it. Therefore, the woman ought to have authority on her head because of the angels. (laughs) And now you look at me and you say, what on earth does that mean? 
right? Well, again, the ambiguity of Scripture is inspired. Okay? And so God wants us to be big boys. God doesn't want all the cookies on a low shelf in his word. Okay? When all is said and done, we're left with this command of the Apostle Paul and therefore the Holy Spirit that woman is to have authority on her head. Now, what does it mean to have authority on her head? We don't know specifically, but we can see above in the text that this authority she is commanded to have is something the man is not to have. And also that this authority is not her hair alone. (laughs) Why not? Well, look at verse 6. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it's disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. It makes no sense for a woman to cut her hair off or to shave her head because she has her hair cut off. Do you follow that? Let me say it again. If her hair is the covering, it makes no sense for a woman to cut her hair off or shave her head because she has her hair cut off. This is not nonsensical. Rather, it makes sense for a woman to cut her hair off or to shave her head because she refuses to cover her head. In other words, it's disgraceful for a woman praying and prophesying to show man's glory when she does so. Now, is this really so very hard to understand? I want you to think hair. Could you all? Or better yet, don't think hair. I want you to feel hair. And if you women don't understand, that's okay. It's a man's thing. Think and feel hair with me for a second. Hair. Woman's hair. One way to say it is to say that big hair is prohibited when woman prays and prophesies. Or rather, woman's head conspicuously displays man's glory. Not just her husband's glory, but man's glory. And so she is to cover that glory when she prays and prophesies among the assembly of the righteous. How does woman's head conspicuously display man's glory? Well, think head, the authority over the body, and then think hair, the glory of the head, particularly for the woman. What calls more attention to the glory of woman, which is the glory of man, than woman's hair? And see, I I look around at all of your faces, and, you know, men, you get it, don't you? This is not a difficult concept for you as men, right? But see, you failed me because you haven't taught your wife and your daughters. And I fail me because I've been avoiding it like the plague for 25 years. 
And that's not really that scandalous. Moses allowed divorce for the hardness of the people's heart. Women, let me let you in on a secret. Men love your hair. And hair is never not a statement. There's a woman who used to come to church here. She was a member of our church. And if I told you she was a soprano, would you understand what I was saying? Not a contralto. But I haven't yet gotten really to, I haven't cut to the chase yet, because really every time I describe this woman to anybody, what I say is that she had a flowing mane, that she had glorious hair, that her hair was like unlike anything I'd ever seen in my life. And so she wasn't a woman, and she wasn't even a soprano. She was a diva. She was like, whoa, and she had the personality to match it. You see, I can't describe this woman. Even when I'm running away from 1 Corinthians, if I ever describe this woman to anybody, I always describe her hair. Because without her hair, you don't even know what she's like. (laughs) But with the hair, you know who she is. And she's far beyond a woman. And she's far beyond a soprano. She's actually far beyond a diva. And listen, if you think it's unseemly to talk about women's appearance, would you please open your Bible and just read how often women's appearance is dealt with in Scripture? Would you read what it says about why Isaac was happy? (laughs) Do you know what it says about Rebecca? She's a fox. And do you know what it says when she comes and sees her husband? It says she got down off the camel and she veiled herself. And at that moment, her hair had more glory than it had ever had in her life prior to being married. Because her hair testified to her subjection to her husband. And that's why all through history, the central act of a marriage ceremony, besides the giving and receiving of vows, is the veiling of the bride. And we live in such a perverse day that we're completely locked tight, bound with feminism. And you go down to David's bridal back behind Lowe's, and you walk in there, I challenge you to do this, And you just look at the prices on those veils. And so, you know how I say we always want to witness to God by being like the world? So here's my proposal. What I want all of you to do is go down there and buy one of those bridal veils, because apparently they're in vogue. 
No, you're not laughing. <laughs> What's wrong? What's wrong? Come on, what's wrong? Come on, come on, come on. Come on. What's wrong? Why is it proper to have a Hollywood movie confess God's created order? And it's wrong for the people of God in worship to do it. This is like so perverse. So if you need the world to give it to you, just take any movie that has a marriage, a wedding ceremony in it this afternoon, put it in your DVD, all right, go to Netflix, watch it, and look at the veil. <laughs> and then think to yourself, what does the world know that I don't know? What is it that calls more attention to the glory of woman, which is the glory of man, than woman's hair? Let me read Calvin to you again. To see a woman shaven is a spectacle that is disgusting and monstrous. And I want, I want to say one other thing to you. Next week, Lord willing, it's going to be our final week in this series. And next week, we're going to get really specific. But I want to cut to the chase about specificity by saying to you, length is always a function of culture. And so the Bible is not saying that the woman that has the longest hair is a Pentecostal. Do you, do you see? We always have this way. But, you know, I've noticed, I think I've noticed that in the Pentecostal world also that the men walk one half step behind the women. Anybody else notice that? Come on, guys. We're not talking about an external thing that if you get it right, then you're godly. But we are talking about external things, and I will not give up on that. But if you think that to have your hair the length of my wife is a scandal, I think you're wrong. And you know what? It's between her and me and the elders. If you want to file charges against my wife for having hair that's this long, go ahead. And when those charges come before the elders, you know what I'll do? I'll stay out of the elders' room. But they'll call me at some point and say, what do you think? And I'll say, you know, I think that's long hair. And I think that communicates femininity in the world we live in. And they say, yeah, but nobody would have ever had their, that, their hair that short back at the time of Christ. And I say, how do you know? And they say, well, we've seen pictures. <laughs> Listen, form follows function. And if you look at my wife's hair and say that form doesn't follow function, I think you're mistaken. Because it does me fine, thank you. And ain't that what's important? And you say, well, no, it's, it's long and short hair. And I say, okay, fine, so tell me how long. You know, are we going to turn into a Christian school with a yardstick measuring knees and dresses? It's pathetic. 
It's like Brian Daub said when he was a missionary in Cairo. He said, you wouldn't believe how seductive the eyes of women behind a burqa are. And little glimpses of their ankles. Listen, it's your heart. And you say, yep, that's what I thought all along. And I'm submissive and I don't have a covering on. I say, oh, wait a second now. It's your heart and your body. And you say, well, okay, your wife's hair is too short. And I say, file charges with the elders and we'll have it out. You say, well, no, I'll first come to you alone, brother, man to man, and explain to you, and then I'll bring somebody else. And I say, I just escalate it to the elders right away, would you please? <laughs> <laughs> and listen, I'm not trivializing this. It should matter to you whether or not the preacher's wife has hair that demonstrates femininity. And you can't deny that there's a connection with length. Because it says, cut it off. But I'm fine with my wife's hair. And I don't think it violates scripture. And I'm so glad her hair is among the shortest in this church right now. Because imagine me trying to make this case if I couldn't use my wife. You know what I had a couple men in this church say to me after the sermon two weeks ago? They both said to me, and they didn't know they each said this to me, they both grew up in a culture that is not North American Anglo-Saxon. And they both told me that they grew up in churches where they could not see the preacher because of the hats on the women's heads. Now, is that what the text means? You see, we're always showing God, making a big show out of our submission to him, and then denying him the very thing that we claim to be giving to him. <laughs> and listen, if, if, if people behind you can't see the preacher because of your head covering, ah, seems like you've fallen off the other side. Not because I'm good to look at, But because I think eye contact and presence are an integral part of communication. And that's why John Piper is horribly wrong to have video venues. But no, no, I'm not going to get into that. I've already, I've already caught a tiger by the tail and I'm holding on. <laughs> okay, now listen. This is, this is Calvin. To see a woman shaven is a spectacle that is disgusting and monstrous. Hence, we infer that the woman has her hair given her for a covering, but such a covering as requires another thing to be made use of for covering it. <laughs> covering raised to a covering. All right? And so it seems likely that women who had beautiful hair were accustomed, he's speaking of the Corinthian church, it seems that women who had beautiful hair were accustomed to uncover their heads for the purpose of showing off their beauty. <laughs> It is not, therefore, without good reason that Paul, as a remedy for this vice, sets before them the opposite idea that they be regarded as remarkable for unseemliness rather than for what is an incentive to lust. Remember how I said men understand? Well, there John Calvin says the word. If you don't pick up anything else from me today, would you please pick up the fact that woman's hair is seductive to men? And if you're a man, and you're looking at me right now, and you're saying, liar, liar, pants on fire, you're a pervert. I say, no, you're brain dead. 
woman's hair has always been sexual. There's no way to understand this text without understanding that woman's hair is sexual. And so what Calvin says is, in the church at that time, women were displaying their hair in such a way that it was unseemly. And so what Calvin says is, that's wrong, and that's why the Apostle Paul is saying what he's saying. The woman, he goes on, is the glory of the man. There is no doubt that the woman is a distinguished ornament of the man. (laughs) I'm looking at one of my sons-in-law, and I'm laughing, you know? I mean, think of what Ben would be without Michael. I mean, Ben, I love you, but you need that ornament. Would you agree? Thank you. Okay. All right. Okay. A woman is a distinguished ornament of the man, for it is a great honor that God has appointed her to the man as a partner of his life and a helper to him and has made her subject to him as the body is to the head. For what Solomon affirms is to a careful wife that she's a crown to her husband, Proverbs 12.4, is true of the whole sex. The whole sex. If we look to the appointment of God, which Paul here commends, showing that the woman was created for this purpose, that she might be a distinguished ornament of the man. When my mother comes here, and my mother sits up front, and she's deep into senility, and my mother has that beautiful white hair, When Mary Lee's mother comes here and sits up front with us, sharp as a tack, and she has that beautiful white hair. It is such an ornament to me. It helps me so much to be a preacher. It helps me so much to have boldness as I preach. Even with my mother in Toledo, what strength. Every time she'd say, why doesn't God take me? I want to die. I'd say, but mud, you give me strength. She's an ornament to me. Think of Glenn with Rachel. Oh, who could, who could abide a household of Richard and Glenn? <laughs> but Rachel. And all of a sudden... The smell is sweet. The beauty is evident. The love is servanthood. The, the, the vomit is cleaned up. She is a woman. She's a woman. Woman is a distinguished ornament of the man, and therefore that ornament, at its greatest glory and beauty, the hair covering the head, is to be covered out of deference to the glory of God when she prays and prophesies. During the worship of the church, 
God is to receive all the glory. All of us are to be jealous for his glory. And thus the man who is the image and glory of God is not to pray or prophesy covered, and the woman is not to pray or prophesy uncovered. The man covered denies his position. The one uncovered denies her position. The man uncovered calls attention to the glory of God as he ought by displaying it. The woman covered calls attention to the glory of man as she ought by covering it. And this pleases the angels who delight in man confessing the order that God created. Remember I said in the beginning of the first sermon about the angels, I said, if anybody cares. Remember that? Do you care about the angels? Do you care about whether or not you and your conduct pleases them or causes them to turn their heads away. Scripture connects this to the angels. And so the angels look on our worship and they're either glorifying God because of our submission to his word or they're scandalized. And the fact that we didn't know it, and we had an unfaithful pastor who hid this from us for 25 years, matters not a whit. Because Jesus Christ is the stone, the cornerstone, which we, each of us, in our homes and our marriages, are built upon or which crushes us. And so that's this week's sermon. If you'll notice, every single time that I have mentioned the covering, except once, I have always said, when she prays or prophesies. And that's one of the things we have yet to deal with, which is, what is the meaning of that for our worship? And one thing I'll say to you is, if the Apostle Paul had intended to say that women should wear burqas when they go out in public, He would not have said when she prays and prophesies, and he wouldn't have said about the man when he prays or prophesies. All right? And so what we're dealing with here is we're dealing with a question, for instance, when I'm preaching, should a woman have a head covering on? And you'll be happy to know that I believe in the plurality of the eldership. And that I'm going to submit that part of my preaching next week to the elders during the elders meeting this week. Because I think whatever we do, there should be order. And the elders should choose the poison. In other words, there's sometimes when as a pastor and you're preaching and teaching that you're treading on the turf of the ruling elders. Do you you understand this? Does this make sense? And so the elders are going to tell me how they want to apply this text in our life as a church. Does this make sense to you? And I love it. I love having a plurality of eldership so that we do things decently and in order. 
But whatever the application, it's not going to be ethereal. It's not going to be just, well, you know, I want you to understand. <laughs> it's going to have some physical application. Right? And so pray for them as they make that decision. Pray for me that I'll be faithful. Remember what the Apostle Paul always told the people to pray for him about? He said, pray that I will be bold. The Apostle Paul asked them to pray that he would be bold. And so pray that I will be bold. Pray that the elders will be bold. And pray that we will have such faith that instead of the elders choosing our poison, we will understand that they have chosen our glory. And that we say, yes! Such men of God to lead us. We knew we were right in choosing that one. Because you did, after all, choose them. Okay, let's pray. Father, we are weak and faithless like your disciples were. And Father, we do want to hide our light under the bushel, and we do want to lose our saltiness, and we do want to fit in. And we pray, Lord, that you will give us faith to be your peculiar, your holy, your sanctified people in the matter of our sexuality. We pray this in Jesus' name.